Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today, Gus Alberelli. Hi, Gus. Hi, Nabil. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Gus is a co-founder and managing director of Sunstone Partners. He currently serves as a board director of Avertium, NetSpy, Nexa, and UserZoom. Prior to founding Sunstone Partners, Gus was a managing director at Trident Capital, which he joined in 2012. Before Trident Capital, Gus was a director at Kennet Partners, where he led in growth equity investments across the technology sector. Gus began his investment career in 2003 at Trinity Ventures, where he primarily worked with early stage technology companies. Prior to becoming an investor, Gus held several business development and marketing positions at Saltair, a venture-backed enterprise software company. He started his career as an analyst in the technology investment banking group of Robertson Stevens. Gus's prior investments include Outmatch, acquired by Rubicon Technology Partners, and Prolexic, acquired by Akamai. Raised in Miami, Gus earned a bachelor's degree from Swarthorne College, where he was a Swarthorne Scholar and an MBA from Columbia Business School. Gus is also a soccer player and an avid soccer fan. We will be chatting about some of his soccer heroes as well. So Gus, how did you get started with investment banking? I graduated from undergrad in 2000. And that was, you know, for those of us that remember, that was another very uh, big, you know, kind of boom time in technology. And so I always wanted to do something in technology And given my background, felt like investment banking was an easy way to kind of enter that world. And so I joined a boutique bank called Roberts and Stevens that focused on tech investment banking. And so I was an analyst for a couple of years. And frankly, maybe interestingly, I I didn't love certain portions of the job. But what I did love was working with the entrepreneurs and the team members of the tech companies that we represented as clients. So was there anything in particular that kind of attracted you about the tech sector at that time that got you interested in focusing in that area? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in Miami, which historically is not a tech hub by any means, but I was always, you know, one of these people that was interested in, you know, different aspects of technology, whether it was software or certainly the internet was coming up, you know, in the late nineties. And I was fascinated by the opportunities that that was going to create And so I really wanted to be kind of part of the tech ecosystem. And I'm not an engineer by background. That would have obviously uh, been a natural way to to get into into tech. But given, you know, my economics background uh, and major, the investment banks were the ones that were the kind of easiest way to, you know, get into that ecosystem. I was in Philadelphia for undergrad. I wanted to live and move to Silicon Valley. So I remember actually in July of uh, almost 20 years ago now, in July of 2000, I flew out to San Francisco and and, uh, rented an overpriced, very small apartment and uh, started my job in in, the middle middle of July of 2000, just just in time for the... uh, 
stock market to start cratering, uh, but still uh, very high prices for uh, for rents. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, when I think of 2000, 2001, it's, you know, it reminds me of 9-11 and how everything took a turn. And, you know, definitely a new type of normal had to be established uh, after that event. So from your perspective, what were some of the main challenges post 9-11 that you faced in your career? Yeah, so post 9-11, I mean, the economy was already, the, the, the dot-com had definitely bust, the bubble had popped. 9-11 was really the, the nail in the coffin for a lot of companies. And so I had actually left investment banking by then. I was at a software uh, startup and you know it was a very challenging time to raise capital. So companies had to be very capital efficient, kind of go back to basics. You know, the previous five, six, seven years, money had essentially, you know, been flowing like water, almost felt free to a lot of folks. Uh, but as a result, a lot of businesses did not have sustainable business models. And so post 9-11, that really forced the issue for a lot of companies to go back to basics and focus on making sure that their business models were in fact going to survive. And, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, cutting burn rate, uh, from obscene levels, you know, down to either break even or in some cases, you know, God forbid, profitability. Which is very true and interesting. Are there any themes or takeaways uh, that we can talk about post 9-11 that will allow us to be better prepared once we get past this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I, I think there are similarities between the two. Um, I think the way that the Fed has responded uh, is is different now than than uh, post 9/11. Uh, so you know interest rates uh, are practically zero, and you see the stock market you know since March basically just you know skyrocket up uh, from kind of the lows in March. You know in the case post 9/11, 20 years ago, a lot of those things weren't really in place uh, in the same way, and you know companies really were more forced to kind of survive on their own. Having said that, you know, post 9-11, you didn't have some of the same restrictions that you have now, uh, where entire, you know, subsectors of the economy are still effectively shut down. People aren't uh, traveling certainly nearly as much. So hospitality sector is still hurt. Uh, you know, retail sector, although e-commerce is now a much bigger force uh, than it was 20 years ago, uh, that's still a tough sector. You know, restaurants are opening up, but so you have large portions of the economy that are still struggling. But having said that, you know, what's different is you see a real strength in the tech sector. And, you know, post 9-11 and coming off the dot-com crash, that was a low point in many ways for, for tech. Uh, it was a great opportunity uh, to start businesses and for innovation. Uh, so I think that is one commonality that still exists today, which is if you're looking to start a company right now, it's, it's, it's if you're laid off, if you have a, an idea that you think in a post-COVID world, you know, will scale nicely. These are the times that historically uh, allow people to start companies uh, in a capital efficient way. Do your investing strategies change post a crisis like we are in today? We're long-term investors. We're very patient capital. Um, you know, we've been on boards of companies for, you know, my partner just stepped off uh, a board of a healthcare company called Teladoc. He was the first institutional investor in that business and, you know, was literally on the board from May of 08 until May of 2020. And so, and, and you know, through the IPO, et cetera. So uh, we're very patient capital. And from our perspective, we're really looking for investments in large macro trends that are going to be benefiting from tailwinds for decades plus. 
Uh, and so the core subsectors that we focus on within kind of tech-enabled services and software at Sunstone are, are ones like cybersecurity, like healthcare IT, that, you know, regardless of any sort of, you know, one, two-year, you know, market disruption are still largely going to continue growing well. Uh, throughout any, uh, and you're seeing that now with cybersecurity and healthcare IT as examples uh, growing nicely through uh, at least the first few months of, of COVID. So that brings me to a question I've had for you for a long time, which is why did you start Sunstone? And in particular, why did you decide to focus your investments on cybersecurity? You know, we started Sunstone five years ago. We spun out of our older shop. Two of my partners and I had been working there for a long time. Uh, had known each other, had a common set of both kind of values and just investment philosophy. And so anytime you're starting any business as a founder or co-founder, you know, who you're working with is really important. And, you know, there's going to be some long hours and, the you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not like the show Silicon Valley where it's all fun and games and it seems like it's all glamorous. It's, uh, there, there was no launch party for, for Sunstone when we started. You know, different from a tech company, what you historically have seen with a lot of investment firms is it doesn't end up being the, you know, dropout from college that's a good, uh, a good coder. It tends to be uh, founders of investment firms tend to be a little older, so typically more in their 30s versus their 20s. And part of the reason is at the end of the day, you're, you know, we're investing a very large percentage of our own capital. Uh, terms of my personal net worth, it's very close to 100% of my net worth is invested in Sunstone and the, the funds that we've raised. But the reality is uh, you are at the end of the day managing other people's money. And so we have uh, endowments, we have pension funds, you need to have a track record that, that they're investing behind. And you know, we were fortunate enough previous to starting Sunstone to have a few uh, you know, strong investments. And we thought that there was an opportunity in the market to start a firm, you know, focused exclusively on founder-led, founder-started businesses that had reached a certain scale, but were looking for uh, help in getting to the next level. So typically our investments range, uh, before we get involved, 10 to 50 million of revenues and typically one to nine million of EBITDA. And more often than not, we're the first institutional capital into those businesses. So they've kind of started the companies the old-fashioned way kind of, you know, rubbing credit cards together, borrowing money from friends and family, uh, really kind of, you know, as it called, you know, bootstrapping themselves. And part of what we're doing is helping them acquire competitors, uh, potentially invest more in sales and marketing. Uh, sometimes they've got to rewrite their software product. And, you know, those are all things that we have uh, invested pretty significantly in a portfolio operations group. So that post-investment, we can help through our operating partners and our post-investment group with kind of best practices on how to achieve some of those goals. In terms of the subsectors that we've invested in uh, or invest in at Sunstone, it's really the same ones that we've been investing in for a while. I think one of the benefits of starting your own shop uh, is you can really follow your passion and, and do you know, things that you like doing and, and want to continue doing and focus on. So cybersecurity has always been an area that's interested me. Uh, I was fortunate enough earlier in my career to make an investment in a company that uh, ended up doing quite well. Uh, happened to be a cybersecurity company. And so, you know, kind of that early success ended up kind of feeding on itself. And so as a result, I ended up seeing more deal flow in cybersecurity. It was an area that had interested me for years. And so consequently, that's one of the core subsectors within tech-enabled services and software that we invest in at, at Sunstone uh, from our two funds. We Fund one was $300 million, and we activated that in 2016, uh, four and a half years ago. Uh, and uh, we just recently, uh, six months ago, closed on our second fund, which is $500 million. 
Well, congratulations on on both of those. Thank you. And then, you know, when it comes to investing specifically in cybersecurity organizations, what are some of the specific characteristics or key considerations that you end up making before you do that investment? Yeah, I mean, it's a big cliche, but at the end of the day, it really is about people. You know, these are long relationships. You know, we sometimes joke that most of our investments last uh, meaningfully longer than most marriages. So when we're working with folks, uh, with founders, with CEOs, you know, we want to make sure that we have a a like-minded vision of of what we want to accomplish. And uh, one of the things I've always loved about my job is, is you never meet uh, a low energy, depressing founder. By definition, to be a founder of any company, especially a tech company in, in, in a high growth sector, you have to have a lot of positive energy. You have to be a little bit of a dreamer. Um, and so, you know, I connect very well with those folks. I, I get excited. Their enthusiasm is, is infectious. And so I've always uh, enjoyed that aspect of the job. Uh, so, you know, first and foremost, it starts with people. Uh, obviously, you know, a lot of the investments that we make, you know, they haven't had the benefits of early stage venture capital to just kind of hire everyone they wanted to day one. So a big part of what we're talking about with the founder and the CEO at the time of our investment is, hey, you know, in order to take your company to the next stage, uh, what are the additional folks that we need to add to the team to take the company uh, to the next level? And those are good conversations. The other thing that we look for, obviously, is the technology. I mean, whether it's uh, a service or a piece of software, a software company, you know, that differentiation is important. But, you know, more so than the actual service or or software, for us, the biggest uh, area that we spend time on is the market. And the reason is we're, by definition, investing in pretty young, immature businesses. And if their service or software is good, but not great, you can improve on that. Um, But rarely are you able to improve a market. The market either is going to be one that continues growing and is of a certain size where you can build a large standalone business or it's not. And so we're looking at the, you know, kind of macro trends that result in, you know, a company being able to scale to a hundred million plus of revenues. And the reason that we kind of think about it in those terms is that's a critical number for a lot of businesses to get to in order to get acquired for uh, an outsized outcome. That's fair and makes complete sense. So Gus, I I want to shift gears a little bit. I do like talking to our guests about non-security and non-work-related items in their lives as well. I know that you are not only an avid soccer fan, but also a soccer player. Can you share with us a little bit about any all-time soccer heroes or favorite players that you have and why? Yeah, so my um, I was born in, in Miami. My father was born in Italy. So growing up, he was a, a, a big fan of the Italian national team. You know, watching the World Cup every four years was, you know, kind of a, a sacred month every summer. And uh, I was always, you know, taught that that was kind of, you know, who I needed to root for. Uh, and I certainly did and still and still do. Um, but, you know, partly just given my age, uh, you know, I, I, I came of age at a time where, where Maradona was 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 a god. And uh, obviously, you know, they, they won the 86 World Cup when you know, I was I was turning eight. And then in the 1990 World Cup, they, they got to the finals and I was 12. So during those kind of you know, formative years where you're young and idealistic and really just I remember living and dying by, you know, who, who won the game and who scored the goals. And I could tell you all kinds of random fun facts from from World Cup history. 
but he was he was my favorite player. I mean, he was uh, I'm, I'm not particularly tall and he was, you know, even shorter than I was and somehow able to dribble through, you know, 11 folks. And what he was able to do with the ball was just incredible. Uh, you know, some of his other views and, you know, maybe later in life, he uh, you know did some things that are not as popular, but certainly in 86 and, and 90, uh, his his soccer ability on the pitch was really remarkable and uh, something that I, you know, I still think back to, you know, fondly uh, as a child. I think you mentioned something which is very common amongst people and fans of different sports and athletes is that we always seem to somehow find little parts of ourselves or similarities with our sports heroes. And Maradona, as you said, you know, you you seem to feel more connected to him because you had similar physical attributes. And, you know, that also helped you kind of feel closer to him and wanting to, you know, look up to him and be more like him. I'm assuming you also would mimic him when you're playing when you were actually playing as a kid and you would try to copy his moves and things like that too. Oh yeah, I mean even even in in silly things like uh when he scored his hand of god goal uh which which was obviously not very popular in in uh, in London. Um you know, I remember probably all of all of us during soccer practice uh with my team everyone was trying to kind of figure out how you could you know, kind of do it in a way where it didn't look that you were hitting it, hitting the ball with your hand. But, uh, you know, it really, it, it highlights the, the impact that sports have uh, on, on kids, on, on, on the culture. And, uh, you know, I, I completely agree with, with what you said in terms of, of uh, you know, you, you try and emulate your, hero, your sports heroes. Uh, sometimes it's because you have certain things in common. Sometimes, you know, I mean, listen, I, I loved Michael Jordan and, you know, I, uh, I, I can't jump and I can't shoot. So it's not, it's not always, uh, always true that you see a little piece of yourself in, in your sports heroes, but uh, you nevertheless, you know, appreciate, uh, you know, just kind of the amazing things that they do. And it's a, it's a great way to kind of check out from your, your day in day out life and, and uh, just kind of watch the beauty of, of, of the sport. Well, soccer is definitely a sport that has very large reach across the globe. In fact, I mean, I grew up similar to you watching the World Cup every four years with my parents, wherever we were. And coming from have, being born in Bangladesh, there is a group of people who are hardcore soccer fans. Well, we all call it around the world. It's called football, right? That's what I, I grew up calling it too. But we have these football fans. And in Bangladesh, during the World Cup time, people paint their houses and buildings the color of the flag of the team that they're supporting. So these people in my country have never been to you know, Argentina or Italy or Brazil, but they'll paint their whole building the colors of the flags just because they're supporting them in the World Cup. It's definitely an exciting time. And um, I remember I have very vivid memories of soccer games from my early childhood. And since you're from Italy originally, you know, one of my favorite moments was, well, not favorite moments because I cried afterwards, but, but it was when Roberto Baggio missed the penalty kick in the World Cup final and Italy lost. I was rooting for Italy. And I remember crying for like an hour afterwards when I was much younger. Yeah, no, that, uh, that, that 94 World Cup, which was in the U.S., uh, is one that I, I remember uh, very, very clearly. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't know if I cried, but I definitely was in a period of mourning after that uh, missed, uh, missed kick. So I, I remember that one well. <laughs> well, Gus, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure talking to you and extremely informative. Hopefully we get through this COVID pandemic soon and hopefully I get to see you in person uh, one of these days. 
Thank you. And uh, I mean, listen, we're going to definitely get through this. There's a lot of great, uh, great things uh, in the future. I know sometimes people focus on some of the scary aspects of what's going on now, but I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. And I believe that uh, there's going to be some great days ahead of us, uh, both personally and professionally. So I think uh, let's, let's focus on the positive and together we'll get through this. Absolutely. Thank you, Gus. Thank you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.